Welcome to the resource room. I'm Amanda, the blogger and TPTer behind the Primary Gal. As a special education teacher, you are always supporting others, students, parents, general education teachers. But who is supporting you? That's where this podcast comes in. It's my mission to give you the help and support that you need. I'll be sharing my tips, tricks, research-based strategies, and professional development. I'm here to help you grow and learn as a resource room teacher. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Welcome back, my friend. In episode number six, we are going to talk about things you can do after reading a passage together in a small group. Now, this is just my opinion, but I think that this is when the hard stuff happens. A lot of times when we are doing pre-reading or during reading activities, we naturally just support our students. We stop and reread, we stop and discuss things, we ask for those predictions. We just kind of do that naturally. And so we are offering support, offering support, offering support. And for some reason, when we're done reading, it's like, okay, now you're on your own and I need you to answer these questions or write this or do that. And we went from a high level of support to no support. And in my mind, we have to find a way to balance that so that they're supported at all times and they're practicing strategies that they could use after they've read so that they know what to do next. Now, to avoid just dropping them, you're on your own. Now you have to answer all these questions. Now you have to do all of this on your own. One thing that we can work on is analyzing what types of questions are out there so that we know how to approach them. So really, according to um, a system called QAR, um, there are four types of questions. So there are right there questions, things that if I go back, I can look and I can see Okay, what color was his shirt? What was his favorite food? What did he like to do? What were his hobbies? Those are right there. It told me all I have to do is go back and reread. And for a lot of our students with disabilities, those questions are pretty easy for them. They can handle those because it is right there. They don't have to make an inference. They don't have to use their background knowledge. It was simple. It told me those are the questions they like. There are also think and search questions. And so these are questions that there might be some evidence in the story or there might be some clues, but we're also going to need a little bit of background knowledge. We're also going to have to draw some conclusions on our own as well. The third type of question is called the author and you. So you are going to have to use what the author has given you along with your own personal experience and thoughts and beliefs and answer questions that might be more like, now, what would you do if you were this character? Or how do you think this character should have handled this particular issue? Or using what you know about this, what do you think about that? or compare this to something that you already know or something that you already do. So again, they need some information from the text, but a lot of that information is also based on an experience or based on something that they know and that they do or that they're familiar with. 
The last type of question is an on your own question. And so that takes kind of whatever the text, whatever the topic was about, and puts it in their perspective or in their world. How would this issue affect your life? How is this problem, how would that affect your community or your family? Some of those types of things. So it takes what the topic or the points that they would have learned from the text but it puts it more on them and how it would impact them, how they would see that problem in their own life or in their own world around them. Knowing each of these different types of questions is important because then they can begin to see that questions are different. And because the questions are different, the answers are going to be different as well. So if some questions require me to look in my book and the question is right there, it told me his favorite food was pizza. So guess what? I can write down that his favorite food was pizza. But if it says, why did he enjoy pizza so much? And it didn't really tell me, oh, I might have to think about why did he like pizza so much? Well, he enjoyed eating pizza so much because he was with his grandpa. And he enjoyed the time that he was spending with his grandpa. But the text didn't really tell me that that was why he liked pizza. I just kind of came to that in my head. We need to teach our kids that that is okay. It's fine for them to have some answers that come from the book and some answers that come from inside our brains. That's okay. Sometimes though, the problem is, we have students who can only answer one type of question or the other. So of those four types, they are rock stars that write their questions. But if they, if it's not right there, if they have to come up with it out of their own head or their own experience, they don't know what to do. And the opposite is true. Sometimes some kids cannot answer the simplest questions that are right there in front of them because they're so focused on what is in their own head. So we need to be able to kind of have students identify some of these questions are right in front of you, but some of them are not. And some of them you're going to have to rely on your own conclusions and your own thoughts and experiences. And that's okay. There are times for both of those. So having our students understand those different types of questions can help them be better at answering different types of questions. So although this is the hard stuff, this is when things get more complicated, we can help them by helping them understand what types of answers they might have to some of those questions. After we're finished reading, it's also important to train our students with different steps or procedures or test taking hacks or question hacks to help our students answer questions a little bit better. So for me, we have lots of acronyms for citing evidence. For me, I use yes ma'am, just because that's kind of what several schools that I've worked in have used. Um, but there are also things like race, where you restate, you answer, you cite, and you explain. It all means the same thing. It's all, we're, we're giving an answer and we're explaining the answer. So there are procedures, you can practice that over and over and over again so that in time they know, oh man, this is a question and I have to write real words and real sentences to answer it, what do I do? It's not just picking A, B or C anymore. And so there are procedures, there are steps. First do this, 
then do this. And you can practice each of those steps slowly and get good at this and then move on to the next step. Get good at that, move on to the next step. We can also teach them to do things like eliminate answers or look back for key words, things like that, that can make answering questions easier for them. I also promised you a few activities to do after you have read a text or a passage with your students. Now, we know that we should be teaching them how to answer some of these questions, some steps and procedures for doing that. And some of these activities, in my mind, are good to do before you actually dive into those questions. Make sure they have a good, solid idea of what the passage was about so that then they are ready to answer some of these questions. And sometimes they can learn a little bit from their peers or learn a little bit from the discussion so that they're ready to answer questions or especially when we're talking about like open-ended questions, some of these activities give them a lot of information that then they can use to answer those questions. So the first activity is called Four Corners. I like four corners because most teachers are familiar with it or have played some version of this game at one point or another. And it's easily adaptable to different subjects, different topics, whatever you want to do. For this, I would suggest having corners that say agree, disagree, and then strongly agree and strongly disagree. And then you would read sentences about your passage. So maybe it is humans are harming sharks. And then students would decide, is it agree, disagree, strongly agree, or strongly disagree? And then I have my students have a discussion with the people in their corner. Sometimes if I know we're going to be writing about this topic or, you know, citing evidence, I might have them also have discussions with the opposite corner. So if you were a strongly agree, I might have you talk with the people who chose strongly disagree to prove your answer. You could also use this with more fictional based passages like Christina was a very unhappy child and then have students decide, do you strongly agree? Do you agree? Do you strongly disagree or do you disagree? with that statement. So it's a great way to get students talking and really there's no right or wrong answer as long as you can prove or cite some evidence for what it is that you have chosen. Another activity to practice different strategies about setting and the characters and the problem and solution um, for more fictional based activities is a story pyramid. So I like this activity because it does not require students to be writing these long elaborate sentences about things, but more putting some words on paper that are going to help them better understand or better answer other questions later. So it is called a story pyramid because you start out with a one word answer at the top, followed by a two word answer and a three word answer and a four word answer and so on until eventually you have eight little lines that build your pyramid, the base of your pyramid. And um, as always, sometimes it's kind of hard to describe what you would do. So I have taken a picture and put it in a blog post, which is linked in the show notes. If you want to see what the heck I'm describing but we are making a pyramid using words. 
And so at the beginning of the pyramid, you're just going to list the name of the main character. In the second line, you would describe the, that character using two words. In the third line, you're going to describe the setting using three words. Using four words on line four, you would state the problem. In five words on the fifth line, you would describe one event that happened in the story. Line six, you're going to describe another event in the story. Line seven would describe a third event in the story. And number eight, line eight would have eight little blanks and they would use that line to describe the solution to the problem that happened in the story. So it's quick and easy. It's something that, um, you know, they're not writing these long paragraphs to answer questions, but it does help clarify that they knew what happened and would give them some words or some information to then answer in an open-ended question. I also love using T-charts. That is my third activity for helping students after we have finished reading. And I like T-charts better than a Venn diagram because I think it really gives students a little more of a purpose and a way to organize information. So whenever I'm using a T-chart, I train my students to put specific things in the center column. And once again, I have pictures of this in the blog post that's linked in the show notes. But using a T-chart instead of a Venn diagram helps your students compare and contrast different characters, different stories. They could compare the main character to themselves. Whatever it is that you are wanting to compare, you can use a T-chart. I love it, especially for comparing two stories, but you could certainly use it for many, many other things. And again, gives them information to begin using in open-ended questions. The fourth activity is one of my favorites. Um, so I think I like it so much because it reminds me of a game that I played with my grandparents when I was a kid. And with that, we, I don't know if it really had a name, maybe it was called Around the World, but we were going on a trip and we were going to take items with us that had to be named in alphabetical order. And it was a memory game. So with that, we would say, I'm going on a trip and I'm going to take an apple. And then person number two would say, I'm going on a trip and I'm going to take an apple and a brush. And then person number three would have to say, I'm going on a trip and I'm going to take an apple a brush and my car and they would have to come up with something that started with a C. And then the fourth person would say all of the first three items plus add something that started with a D and you would have to go all the way through the whole alphabet and just keep going around and around in a circle. So this game practices visualization and it's just fun and kind of gets your students picturing what is happening in a story. So after you have finished reading, you would ask them to name something that was in the story. And then like around the world, you're going to have to remember what the previous person said. And it just builds and builds and builds. I have never made my students do it in alphabetical order. I think for my kids that would be too hard. But remember, I have kindergarten through third grade students. Maybe some that were a little older could do that or at least do that with some help but I, I usually don't make them do it in alphabetical order. But to give an example, if we had just read a story where the setting took place at a beach, I might say, 
when I read this story, I saw sand. And then person number two might say, when I read this story, story, I saw sand and a beach chair. And then person number three would have to say the first two items. When I read the story, I saw sand, a beach chair, and I saw a bottle of sunscreen. And then person number four would say, when I read the story, I saw sand, a beach chair, a bottle of sunscreen, and the sun that was shining so brightly. Person number five would have to say all of those th things and then add their own. I like this because most of my groups have about four or five students. So then if we're including them plus me, we would only have five to six items. But it really helps see who is visualizing things from the story, who was unable to do that. But after the first student or so, they begin thinking, okay, well, if this is at a beach, what else might we see? Oh, maybe we saw a shark. Maybe we saw a jellyfish. Maybe we saw a crab. Maybe even if they've never been to the beach, they might be able to think of some things that they know exist there and pull from some of their background knowledge. So this is just a fun, fun game. It allows kids to really just start thinking of little things that might be at the setting of that story. Plus, I like to have activities that incorporate building some of that working memory. What can they store in their mind for a short period of time and recall again later? The last activity that you can do with your students is called a story card. And really, I adapted this idea from something I saw a long time ago where students drew a picture and then they wrote things that they learned and wrote interesting facts or told two details about the story, told two events that happened. And I thought, you know, I really like this, but I don't want it to be formal like, oh, here's a test or here's a worksheet that you're doing. And so I decided I was going to use it in three by five card format. I also love three by five cards. So I really love the three by five cards that are blank on each side. That works really well for this, but you could also um, use them with lines. That's okay too. Um, on one side, students draw a picture from the story. So this I like because it works with fiction or nonfiction. If you're reading about whales, they can draw a whale. If you're reading about um, telephones, they can draw a picture of a telephone. It doesn't matter what you're reading. They can draw a picture of that. If it's more fictional, maybe they draw a picture of the character or characters. Maybe they draw a picture of a big event that happened. Whatever kind of sticks out in their mind, they can draw a picture. And then on the back side, this is where you can kind of adapt this to fit the age, the reading level, the writing level of your students. And you ask them to write something. And that's where you're going to have to kind of fill in what you think is best. Maybe if it's fiction, you want them to write two interesting facts or two things that they learned. Maybe you would like for them to write what the problem was and how the character solved it. Whatever you want to see out of that is what you ask them to write. Maybe you've been practicing main idea and you want them to write the main idea. Whatever it is, that's what they're going to write on the back. And to be honest, they don't even have to write full, complete sentences. It would be perfectly fine for them to write three words that you think are the most important or what words did you feel like came up over and over and over again in our story. So they can be words or sentences depending on what your students need and what they're capable of doing. But I love the three by five card because you can really quickly check for understanding 
and kind of help pick their brain for whatever it is that's going to be coming up next in answering some of your questions. As I've said many times, these are not the only five things that you could or should be doing with your students, but keep in mind you need some activities to help them show what they know and to help build them up and prepare them for answering other questions. So remember, before I leave you, look at different types of questions because remember, every type of question is going to require a different type of answer or a different way in which you're going to answer that. Am I looking in the text or am I looking in my brain? Am I using what I know plus what, what was in the text to answer this question and, and our kids don't know or see that? I remember um, when I was a kid trying to answer questions that were I, probably in third grade, I would imagine now as a teacher, that's when I, I'm guessing I started seeing this problem in myself. I wanted the answer to be right there. I wanted to know 100% for a fact that that's what the answer was. And I think it's because I was a perfectionist. Even at a young age, I didn't know that I had such a problem, but I wanted to know without a doubt that that's what the answer was. And so then, you know, about that third grade level or that, you know, in third grade, you start making inferences. And I could not understand why some of these answers I could find, but some of them it's like, I think this is the answer. This is what I, you know, I want to write, but I don't know. And our kids need to know that some questions, they have an answer and you can copy it straight from the book and you're going to know 100% without a doubt that you were correct. But some of them, those answers aren't in the book and you're going to have to rely on yourself. And I wish I had known that when I was a kid. We also need to start thinking about some of those types of questions might need some procedures or some steps. What can I do to help make it easier for my students to answer questions? So whether it's a mnemonic um, device so that they can remember, first I do this and then I do this and then I do that and bam, I've just cited evidence from the text. Maybe we need to remind them to look for keywords or to eliminate some answers. Either way, it's our job to help our students understand what we need to do because this is when the hard stuff happens. After we've read a text, now that's when we're asking our kids to do all of this hard work. And a lot of times with like half of the support, if not more than half of the support that they had during all the reading portion. So what can you do to help your students work more efficiently and understand what they're doing after they have read a text. Thanks so much for listening and I will talk with you next week. Well, my friend, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the Resource Room Podcast. I truly, truly love to help and support other special ed teachers. Because of that, I run a Facebook group just for us. Search the Resource Room and request to join. You can also check out my website, theprimarygal.com, for blog posts, pictures, and more information. Until next time, have a great week.